All right, well, if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 12, where we were a few minutes ago. We'll be in verses 14 all the way to verse 29 tonight, to the end of the chapter. All right, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to read 14 through 17 before we pray. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Would you pray with me? Father, we do praise you because you have given us your son who is the risen lamb of God. We praise you because he is no longer on the cross. He is no longer in the grave, but he is alive and he sits at your right hand and he intercedes for us before you and he sends forth your spirit that we might know you. Father, we pray that as we study your word, that very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead would open our minds and our hearts that we might understand your word, that we might believe what it has to say, that we might obey it. Father, uh, remove distractions this evening and allow us to hear clearly from you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago when Shannon and I were first dating, uh, maybe when we were engaged, it's hard for me to remember exactly the timing, but uh, we went out to a restaurant, a nice restaurant for us. That was a bit of a rarity in those days because uh, like many of you, we, just, uh, we were in college. We didn't have a whole lot of additional funds, but we decided we were going to go out. Uh, so we put on our nice clothes. We went out to this restaurant and we had a good time. We were talking, we were laughing, getting to know one another. And uh, at some point during the evening, I remember looking at the table that was behind us, kind of on the other side of Shannon. And as I looked over there, I saw another couple that was sitting at this table and uh, they were maybe 10 or 15 years older than we were. And uh, it was clear that they were married. They had rings on, the whole deal. Uh, And as we were talking, I kind of looked over there and I noticed that throughout the whole evening, they said nothing to one another. They just sat there. They looked at the wall. They looked at their food. They looked at the table. They would occasionally say something to the waitress when she came by, but they said nothing to each other. And uh, I just kind of processed that and then continued going on with our meal. Uh, But as I continued to think about it, I really began to think, boy, that is really sad. Uh, Because to me, of course, at the time, I just was thinking, why would you spend all of this money, come to a nice restaurant, dress up, they were dressed nicely, and then have a terrible time? And as I thought about it, I thought, "That's, that's tragic because I think that it's likely that over time their marriage just began to kind of deteriorate. And although they were out with one another physically, mentally, and emotionally, they weren't really there together. Something had disconnected. And I doubt it is that one day one of them woke up and just said, you know, I'm tired of talking. I don't want to do it anymore. Or one of them woke up and said, "Uh, you know, goal number one for this year is bad marriage. That's what I'm aiming for. And began to plot their strategy. 
I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened was over a period of time, they allowed the pressures of life and those little bitterness areas, those little arguments, those little fights to build up with inside of them until they really had nothing left to say. And so maybe they uh, married 10 or 15 years, they had a couple of kids and it can get tough to talk to one another when you've got two kids also trying to talk and you're tired at the end of a long week and so it's easier just to kind of withdraw into your own worlds. Maybe it is that early on in their marriage, there were a series of small offenses that occurred. Somebody forgot to buy the soap, somebody forgot to take out the trash and they let it go one time, but as time went on and those things build up over one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, they develop a bitter heart toward one another and they just don't even want to look at each other. And it happens in marriages all the time. And it's a slow, gradual process. Uh, Sadly, some of you have probably seen this with your parents' marriage or another marriage you know. It's just this slow drift toward the loss of relationship. It doesn't happen overnight. Now, why do I share that with you? The reason I share that with you is because I think the same thing can happen in our relationship with God. You and I are prone, as the song says, prone to wander. If we are not active and vigilant to seek God, to seek the holiness of God, to pursue knowing him, what happens is the pressures of life begin to creep in. And so over time, we say, you know, I'm very, very busy. I just really don't have the time in the midst of everything else to know God, to know his word, to invest in his people to spend time in prayer. And so slowly, day after day, we begin to pull away. Or maybe it is that there are disappointments or sins that slowly chip away at our relationship with God. Instead of actively fighting them, instead of actively pursuing Him, we just are passive. And we allow those things to chip away at our relationship with God. And so sadly, I've I've known several men and women that have found themselves 5, 10, 15 years out of college and they're no longer walking with God. They may not actively or openly uh, claim atheism, but practically speaking, they live a sort of pragmatic atheism where their life has nothing to do with the things of God. And they're cold toward him and they're cynical and they're bitter. And they may even show up and occupy a chair on Sunday, but their hearts are bitter and cold toward God. And it didn't happen overnight. They didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I'm just gonna chuck all this. Jesus stuff. It happens slowly, day by day by day, as they let their hearts grow cold toward God. And if you and I think that we are outside the possibility of that happening, we're mistaken. And so this passage that we're looking at this evening encourages us to vigilantly and actively pursue Jesus Christ. Think about it again in the context of a marriage. It's not enough for me, if I want to have a good relationship with my wife, it's not enough for me to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to not commit adultery and I'm going to make sure that I don't beat her with a stick, right? Now, those are good things to resolve, right? Those are good plans to have, to not commit adultery, to not hit her. But if that's all I do, If I say, I'm just going to passively stay away from the bad things, if that's all I do, that will not in and of itself make for a satisfying, loving marriage. No, I have to proactively seek her, to know her, to talk to her, to love her, to engage in her world. Same thing in the spiritual life. It's not enough just to say, I want to be just a good boy, a good girl. I'm going to stay away from all the bad stuff. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm not going to engage in sexual immorality. I'm not going to lie or cheat or steal or tolerate those who do and I'll be good, right? But what Hebrews tells us is, no, if you are not actively pursuing Jesus, you're prone to slip away over time. That's what he's been afraid of with his audience all the way through this book. Because remember, these are men and women who, just like you and I, when they began the Christian life, they began it with 
excitement, enthusiasm, joy to follow Jesus. But over time, they began to experience persecution and pressure and fatigue. And they're tempted to simply walk away and go back to what was safe, which for them was Judaism. To go back to it and say, that's where I can find safety. People won't pick on me. People won't take away my stuff. I can be safe there. And he says, be vigilant and on your guard that you continue walking with Jesus so that you don't slip away. And so he's going to challenge this group of believers on how to do that, how to be vigilant, how to walk faithfully and closely with God for a lifetime. And that's my prayer for you guys. Is that 5, 10, 20, 40, 50 years down the road, you're still faithfully pursuing Jesus because you actively pursue him day after day after day. And you grow closer to him instead of farther away. How do we do that? The first thing he says is this, actively pursue holiness and peace. Look at verses 14 to 17 again. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. All right, this passage has that note of vigilance and activity. And here's what he's saying. He's saying in Jesus Christ, God has given us a couple of key things. One is he's given us peace, the opportunity to have peace with one another. Sin no longer has to separate me from you because Jesus died for my sins and he rose again. And he took them away. He defeated sin. And then he gave us his spirit. And if you know Jesus Christ this evening, God's spirit lives in you. And God's spirit binds us together as brothers and sisters. We share common interests. We share a common purpose, which is to make disciples of all the nations. We share common belief. So he says, pursue that peace. Chase after that peace that God has given. And then also he says, the sanctification or holiness Holiness has the idea of being set apart unto God's purposes. Think of the, the special china that your mom reserved for special occasions, right? You didn't get out that china to feed the dog. It was holy, right? If you got it out at the wrong time in the wrong way, you were going to understand how your mom felt about that china, right? It was holy, set apart. In Jesus Christ, God has set you and me apart, For his purposes. And so he says, continue to pursue that path of holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more set apart. It is that peace with God and that peace with others and that holiness before God that allows us to see him and to know him. And Jesus has provided us with that. And so he says, actively and vigilantly pursue that. And one of the ways you do that is you continually examine your heart And you continually look at those around you to ensure that what he calls a root of bitterness does not spring up. This goes back to Deuteronomy 29. And the idea in Deuteronomy 29, the root of bitterness there was an idolater in the midst of the nation of Israel. And the idea is if there's an idolater, somebody who worships false gods, you know what they would do with that idolater? They would stone him or her to death. In some cases, even their entire family for being complicit in the idolatry. Why? Because one idolater in the midst of this group could poison the whole group. And here in Hebrews, he reminds his audience of that. And he says, a person in the midst of you who is bitter, cynical toward God, walking in open sin, can poison the whole community. 
And this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 gives us a really tough command. And that is, if there is a person who claims the name of Christian, who is disobedient, who is walking in sin, we're to pull away from that person. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Don't even get a snack with that person. Now he says explicitly, I'm not talking about the person in the world, the one who doesn't know Jesus. I'm talking about the one in your midst who knows Jesus, or at least says they know Jesus, and yet they're walking openly in sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness. He says, those are the people you pull away and don't associate with them. And the reason is because they can drag the whole community into sin. Whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, you and I are very prone still to the influence of those we spend time with. And so that's why Hebrews says, look around, be vigilant, not only that your own heart stays soft toward God, but that those around you stay soft toward God. And as Hebrews 10 tells us, continue to spur one another on toward love and good deeds constantly so this root of bitterness doesn't spring up because one bitter root can poison the entire community. One person really can have a negative effect on a crowd. All of you have seen this. I can remember a very distinct illustration from when I was in elementary school about Fifth or sixth grade, there was this kid, I I still remember his name. His name was Brad, was his first name. And uh, he was kind of this popular guy in uh, elementary school. And I remember he was uh, going out or whatever with this other girl, Nicole. Now we're in sixth grade, right? So what does that mean? I don't know. Their parents pick him up, take him somewhere. But anyway, they they were going out and Nicole broke up with him. And he was angry about this. So, uh, he decided to get his revenge. And so one day on the playground, he gathered a few of his buddies around and he said, we're going to get Nicole back. And they began to walk around the playground chanting, we hate Nicole, we hate Nicole. And they would just, they would just walk around and around. We hate Nicole, we hate Nicole. Well, other people joined in and uh, there were within a few minutes, 10, 15, 20 people walking around the playground. We hate Nicole, we hate Nicole. Some of them, I don't even think they knew Nicole. I'd be like, we hate, who's Nicole? We hate Nicole, right? And they did it because of this one guy who said, I'm going to gather people together and and cultivate this anger and this bitterness. One person in the crowd can do that. On the other hand, one person in the crowd who is dedicated to knowing Jesus Christ can turn the tide of the whole group toward him. One person who does the right thing can have an unbelievably positive impact too. When I was in high school, I had another kind of crowd dynamic situation that interested me. I was in a English class in 10th grade and our teacher often would leave the class for 15 minutes at a time to go smoke. Uh, and she would just be gone and she'd leave us a worksheet or whatever. And then uh, she would come back and we knew because, you know, we could kind of smell when she came in the mixture of smoke and whatever perfume she'd kind of poured on to cover the smoke. And so she would walk back into the room. And so she did this every single day. And uh, one day she walked out of the room and we knew she was going to be gone for a while. And somebody says, hey, let's just, let's leave. Let's go. Right? And we're like, well, where are we going to go? Like we're in 10th grade, we're 15, we don't even have cars. Like, what are we going to do? And they're like, I, I don't know, let's just go. Well, after a couple of minutes, the whole class agreed, we're going to do it. We're going to get up, except for one guy. And I remember his name was Chet. And Chet said, I, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. It's the wrong thing to do. And we're like, come on, Chet. Like you're ruining our whole party here, you know? But we didn't do it because we couldn't have one guy sitting there who knew that we'd all left, right? So we stayed. 
one person dedicated to do the right thing influenced the whole group. So what Hebrews says is constantly spur others on toward love and good deeds and then actively watch your own heart, watch the hearts of those around you to make sure this root of bitterness doesn't spring up. And the illustration he gives of a root of bitterness is Esau. Esau was the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. You remember Isaac has these twins, Jacob and Esau. This is Genesis 25 to 27. Esau is technically the firstborn. He comes out of the womb first. And by right, the firstborn was supposed to inherit a double blessing, a double portion of the inheritance. Now, if you remember, God had promised to Abraham, their grandfather, uh, this wonderful promise that they would inherit the, the land of Canaan. And they would have descendants as many as the sand on the seashore. And their descendants would bless all of the nations. And God had promised Abraham this eternal blessing. And that was to be passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Esau. But if you remember the story, Esau is the guy that he sees the temporary pleasure more than he sees long-term consequences. And Genesis portrays Esau as just kind of a big, hairy, stupid man. And I'm not making fun of him. That's just the way Genesis portrays him. So Esau's out hunting in the field one day and he comes back in and he's hungry and here's Jacob. And Jacob was always kind of cooking and, you know, doing stuff in the kitchen and kind of hanging out with mom. You know, Jacob was an interesting guy. And so he comes up and Jacob is there and Jacob's making some kind of stew. And Esau walks up and it says literally, Jacob, give me some of that red stuff. I love that red stuff. And I'm hungry. Jacob says, all right, you want, you want the red stuff? I'll give it to you. But give me your birthright. Give me the eternal blessing that God has given you through Abraham and through Isaac. Esau goes, good with me. That's good red stuff. And he takes the bowl and he eats it. And he gives away the eternal blessing to his brother, Jacob. And what Hebrews tells us is here's a man who's so insensitive to God. His heart has become so bitter and hardened toward God that he'll sell away eternal blessing for a bowl of stew. That's a bitter root. And it has far-reaching implications on his descendants. Esau's descendants are a group of people called the Edomites. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the Edomites are constantly in conflict with the Israelites, constantly at war. Thousands, millions of descendants are affected by this one man's decision to pursue temporary gratification over eternal reward. And so Hebrews challenges us, always look to the eternal reward that the scripture is clear, and Hebrews is clear, comes to those who are faithful. Now remember, eternal life is an absolutely free gift given to those who believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, and he rose from the dead. He defeated death and sin. If you believe that, you have eternal life. But for those who are faithful in Jesus Christ, there are rewards. There's the opportunity to reign with Jesus There's the opportunity to receive crowns, which we'll throw back at the feet of Jesus in worship. There's the opportunity to hear praise from our Savior. And we chase these rewards because on the moment we meet our Savior, nothing else will matter as much to us as receiving those things. And so Hebrews says, keep those in the forefront of your mind and don't sell them away for the temporary gratification like Esau did. Because it had irreversible consequences. Even though Esau was sad about it later, he couldn't get those blessings back. They were gone. Many of us are tempted for the sake of prestige, for the sake of money, for the sake of pleasure, for the sake of comfort to sacrifice these eternal rewards. It's a hard concept to delay gratification, 
It's a very hard concept for all of us. We face it in school all the time. You come home from school, you know you have work that you've got to do, and yet you walk into your apartment, your dorm, whatever, and you've got friends who say, hey, come on, let's play a game. Let's go hang out. And I, I experience this a lot. Let's, let's get together. We'll play this game, and we would get together, and I'm thinking, I know I need to do this homework. I'd play, I'll just play this one game, play the one game, and then we'd play another game, another one, and it would hit late at night. I'd go, I got to go to bed. Right? And the next morning, I wake up, and I remember, ah, forgot to write that midterm paper, right? Somebody quick, tell me something about the Civil War, right? And I'm trying to type it up right before class because I prioritize the short-term gain over the long-term reward. And what Hebrews says is if you get a person in your midst that's doing that defiantly and disobediently, you pull away. Don't let that bitter root poison the entire community. Actively pursue holiness before God and peace with others in the community. Actively pursue it. Secondly, he says this, remember the greatness of Jesus Christ. As you actively pursue holiness and peace, what's going to help you do that is remembering who Jesus is and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 18 to 24 again. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they cannot bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel." Right, there's a contrast here between the Old Testament law and the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Right, and if you know about the history of how the law was given, you go back to Exodus 19. The people had left Egypt and they're in the wilderness and they go to Mount Sinai. And it's there at Mount Sinai that God says, Moses, tell the people, consecrate themselves. It means clean themselves up, get themselves ready because I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to them on this mountain. Tell them, don't touch the mountain. Anybody touches the mountain, you're going to be put to death. If your dog or your cow touches the mountain, it's going to die. Get ready, here I come. And so God speaks down, starts to speak down the mountain to the people and his voice shakes with thunder and there's lightning and there's darkness and the people look up and they're terrified and they go to Moses and they say, hey, come here, Moses. Tell God not to say anything else to us. We're pretty afraid. So Moses goes to God and he says, the people have suggested that maybe you just speak to me and I'll speak to them. And God goes, yeah, that's probably a good idea. If I keep speaking directly to them, somebody's likely to die. So Moses goes up on the mountain and even Moses, it says, was in fear. All right, what's the point of all this imagery? The point is this, God was distant. God was up there. You were down here. You couldn't talk to him. You couldn't approach him. And in the system of the law, throughout all of the Old Testament, there's always a mediator between God and the people. That's the priest. They cannot walk into the Holy of Holies. That's Mount Sinai. That's that imagery. On the other hand, here we have Mount Zion. And Mount Zion was the place where the temple was built. It's the Temple Mount. And Mount Zion was where God's presence dwelt. And they could see God's presence. And what he's saying here is, in Jesus Christ, you and I can walk right up into that temple, right up onto Mount Zion, And be in the presence of Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, God has removed the big barrier between us and him. And that is sin. 
And so Jesus provides something that the law could never provide, something so much greater, and that is access to God. And so you've not come to this big, scary mountain filled with fear, but instead you've come to the city of the living God. You've come to myriads of angels. Some of you have translations that say angels dressed in festal garments. They're dressed up in celebration and for a feast, celebrating the fact that God has given us life and access to him. The general assembly, the church of the firstborn. Remember, the firstborn is the one who inherits the blessing from God. That's you and me in Jesus Christ. Church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant by which we have access to God and to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You remember Abel, his brother Cain stoned him to death. And if you go back to Genesis, it says Abel's blood cried from the ground for justice. And in Hebrews 11:4 it says Abel's blood speaks of his faith, testifies he was faithful. But what Abel's blood could not say is you're forgiven. God's justice has been met. Your sin is no longer held against you. That's what Jesus' blood says. So now you can approach God through Jesus Christ in a way you never could have before. Now why does he tell us all of this? For one simple reason, he's challenging us to remember the greatness of Jesus Christ because for those who know him, there is an even deeper accountability to God than there was under the law. Under the law, there were penalties for disobedience up to and including death if you were an idolater or if you violated the law. But under Jesus Christ, it says there are even greater penalties. There's a depth of misery and loss in your relationship with God, loss of peace with others. There's even the possibility of physical death throughout the scriptures for disobeying God and what he has offered in Jesus Christ. And there's all of these eternal treasures as well that you can forfeit. And so it says if they were under judgment for disobeying God under the law, how much more when God has given us access, God has let us know him, God has made us sons and daughters, how much more will there be judgment for those who drift away, harden their hearts and fail to follow him? If you've ever been in somebody's house, maybe a friend's house where you've gotten in trouble and your friend has gotten in trouble, one of the things you may notice is that usually the kid who lives in the house gets in worse trouble than you. I can remember when I was a kid, I went and visited some cousins of ours and our uh, cousins lived up in Nebraska and we didn't see them very often. Uh, We were excited to see them and they lived on a big farm and we had a great time. And uh, toward the back of their property, there was this old house that uh, I think technically the house still belonged to somebody else, but it was kind of on their property. It had been abandoned. And uh, our cousin, this uh, cousin who was about my age said, hey, let's go check out this house. Uh, We went into this house and we're kind of, my brother and I were with him. We go, are we allowed to be in here? He goes, yeah, absolutely. It's no problem. So we walk into the house and we start kind of poking around and there's all of this memorabilia in the house from uh, decades before. Uh, Stuff from World War II, newspaper articles, letters, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, this is good stuff. Let's take some of this stuff, right? So we start kind of stuffing our pockets with stuff, with newspapers, with memorabilia, you know, all this kind of stuff. And uh, we leave the house and uh, he's like, it's totally cool. You know, it's good to take all this, whatever, you know. So we leave the house. We go back to his dad's house. And my dad and his dad were sitting talking and we walk in the living room and I, I go, hey, dad, look, look what we got. Look what Van took us to get. And right as I'm showing it, I can see my cousin over there going like this, like, oh, no. Right? As soon as I show it to my dad, his dad turns around. He goes, son, how many times have I told you not to play over there? 
how many times have I told you you can't take stuff out of that house? And I'm kind of putting the stuff back in my pockets, you know, kind of backing up. Well, we both got in trouble. I got in trouble because I should have probably checked on that before I just took his word for it. He got in a lot worse trouble. Why? Because he knew better. He was the son. It was his house. He knew the rules. He had a depth of knowledge and a depth of relationship that I didn't have. And as a result, his judgment was greater. That's why Hebrews gives us these two examples. Yeah, there was judgment under the law. But if you believe that there is no judgment and no consequences for those who would walk away from Jesus, you're mistaken. There are. And Hebrews has laid many of those out. Loss of this eternal reward. Loss of fellowship with God. Intense guilt and pain and misery in this life. Loss in the next. Even death. Loss of the things you love. We tend to think the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. He's the same God. The same God who shook the mountains and gave the law is the same God who gave us Jesus and raised him from the dead. And yes, we're forgiven. And yes, we have new life in Jesus. But there is still, there are still consequences for those who would disobey. So he says, be vigilant. Be on your guard. Watch your heart. Watch the hearts of those around you so that you don't fall into that. And then he says, finally, invest in this unshakable kingdom. Verses 25 to 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? This, this imagery of the shaking goes back to Haggai 2, and the idea is God will take the heavens and the earth on that last day, and he's going to shake them up. And he's going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And as he shakes the earth up and as he shakes the heavens, those things that are invested in his values, those things that are reflective of him will stick on and everything else is going to fly off. And so all of the stuff that I pour my life into that I think is important, that is at odds with the kingdom of God, it's going to fly off. And all the stuff that's going to remain are those things that I invest in eternity. God's word the people that God loves and has made in his image, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Several years ago on one of our college retreats out at the camp, there's a a lake and out on the lake, they would take a boat and they would attach the boat to one of those long, you know, water weenie kind of water banana things. And uh, several people, five or six people would climb onto the back of that. And some of y'all have done this and uh, the boat driver will go fast and then he'll try to knock everybody off, right? He'll try to maneuver. So everybody will fall off of the water weenie. And uh, this particular year, uh, there were several people on it and this driver is going back and forth as fast as he can. And he does one maneuver and basically everybody flies off. And uh, except for one guy, one of our leaders, he flew off the side of it, but he was determined not to lose. All right. So as he was falling off, he reached up and he grabbed the handle on top at the back and he just held on. 
And the boat was still going and he is being dragged along by his belly in the water as he's holding on, refusing to let go. And the driver is still trying to knock him off and he won't let go. And finally, the driver actually had to give up, slowed down, let him, let him get off. He had this just red raspberry all the way down his body, you know, for weeks because he wouldn't let go. And I, I think of that when I think of this imagery, that those things that are sticky, those things that are eternal, when God goes like this, they're going to stick. But a lot of other stuff is going to fly off. And so the question for you and me is, are, are the things that we're investing our lives in, are they the kind of things that are going to stick? Because again, you, you've heard it a thousand times, but you will not take your money with you. You will not take your reputation with you. You will not take your job, your prestige. You will not take all of these things that we often view as the most important things in our life. What you will carry with you is the service you've done to God in the name of Jesus Christ those men and women whose lives you've poured into. The investment you've made in knowing him and knowing his word. Those things stick. Everything else flies off. And so living in light of the grace of God doesn't only mean avoiding sin. It means actively and positively pursuing the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and making eternal investments. And quickly as we close, a few practical conclusions. How can we do that? First of all, as we said earlier, constantly be examining your own attitude. Is my heart becoming bitter toward God? Am I getting to a place where I'm just lazy in my walk with God? Am I getting to a place where I'm losing that love for him that will drive me to obey him? Secondly, evaluate your friendships. This is one of the hardest teachings I see in the New Testament is that there may be men and women that you and I need to separate from because they're causing us to walk away from God, or at least to be cynical, frustrated, and doubtful. And I've had friends like that in my life that over time I just, I had to separate from. Not because I didn't love them, not because I think I'm a ton better, but because I saw that they were dragging me down a path that was unhealthy and ungodly. All right, thirdly, remember your Savior. Constantly center your mind and your heart on what Jesus has done the holiness that he has given, the peace before God and the peace with others and seek to pursue those things. Constantly remember who Jesus is and what he's done. And then finally, align your values with the kingdom of God. Invest yourself in the unshakable eternal kingdom of God because that's what's gonna last rather than investing in the things that are gonna fly off. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. This is a convicting and powerful text because we are so convicted that many times we were lazy in our walk with you, we're passive, and we allow ourselves to invest in things that really won't matter. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts and our resolve to walk closely with you. God, we trust you. We know that through the power of your spirit, we can do that. And so I pray for each person in here that five or 10 or 15 years down the road, whether we see one another, whether we don't, that you would preserve them in faithfulness to you and to your word, to the very end of their lives. So we can receive the fullness of the blessing and reward you have for us and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us be faithful, God. 
We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.